The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Hey, if you have Bibles, go ahead and grab those, open them up to the book of Joel. Uh, Let me welcome you if you're new here. uh, My name's Eric. I'm the lead teaching pastor here, and we've started last week uh, a sermon series called uh, God in the Ruins, which takes us through uh, the minor prophets. And so those are the books of the Bible that you normally uh, skip over when you're looking for something awesome uh, to read. But uh, don't skip over the minor prophets, not because uh, they don't mean a whole lot, but because they're just simply short. Uh, And so today we have massive three chapters uh, of the book of Joel. And and so all of the minor prophets and all of the scriptures uh, per se, it actually all points to Jesus Christ. And so uh, Hebrews testifies to us that, that God spoke to us through the prophets of old, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so everything that we read about is actually preparing a people like ourselves to uh, receive and understand who Jesus is. And so the book of Joel is where we are. Joel is one of the uh, earliest Uh, prophets that's written. Uh, We don't know a whole lot about his life, but we do know that he is a a spokesman uh, for God. And as I read through the book of Joel, it reminds me of kind of a funny story I heard about, uh, about a guy who went to the doctor uh, and told him that everything hurts. Have you ever had those days? Yeah, so she's like, I I feel that right now. So a lot of us are like, everything hurts. And so he goes to the doctor and he explains to the doctor, he's like, look, I don't know what it is, but it seems like everything on my body hurts. And the doctor says, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, Why don't you show me what you're talking about? And so he says, you know, when I, when I, when I do my shoulder like this, it, it just, it just hurts. Anybody have that? And then he's like, okay, uh, down here in my knee, like right on the side here, like it, it hurts. And, and he says, like, like when I push here, my stomach hurts. He says, when I, when I rub my neck back here, my neck hurts. And, and back here, like my back hurts. And the doctor kind of sits him down and looks at him and says, well, I've got some good news for you. You're not falling apart. Well, that's good, doc. He says, but you do have one problem. He's like, what is that? You have a dislocated finger. I think, I think in our lives, a lot of times, we think, man, this is just not working right. This is not going right. Like, like this is painful, or this is traumatic, or, or my life, it looks like, like everything is in ruins, but in reality, there's really only one thing that's wrong. And so in the book of Joel, it looks like Israel is falling apart. They are in ruins. In their lives of these people, it seems like everything is going wrong. It seems like the nation is in complete ruin. And I know that's hard for us to uh, imagine, but I just want you to imagine the people of this day. They have bad leaders, and they are suffering through a national plague. And they are at civil unrest. They have economic problems. The stock market is down. Gas prices are up. Companies, families, the education system, it's all failing. Sin is rising, and they're facing a national disaster. So kind of get your mind around that. That's where they are. 
And so almost everyone in this time believed that the nation was being destroyed. Destruction was on the horizon. The country was headed for destruction. And so Joel writes to a people, letting them know that it's not just a bunch of things that have gone wrong, but really, it's one thing in particular. And so I think what happens is we look around and we say, well, this is the problem, or this is the problem, or that is the problem. And I'm not saying all of those things are problems, but Joel reminds us, listen, there's really only one real problem. The book of Joel is naturally written into two kind of parts. And the first part, what we're going to see, is there was a terrible locust plague. And these locusts, they came and they destroyed everything in the land. And what we see in the first part is that this is a judgment from God, that if the people would repent and turn back to God, that God would restore their land. The second part of the book, the second half, is what we read about is how God, at some future time, is going to pour out his spirit. And he's going to bless his people And there's going to be a time of judgment for all of the people who actually reject him and don't repent. In other words, God in the first part fights against his people to bring them to a point so low that they would repent and turn to God as their Lord. And then in the second part, there's coming a day where God will fight against the nations for all of those who refuse to repent and turn to God alone. So I'm gonna walk you through this book. We're gonna read a lot, so go ahead and open up your Bibles and get there, or you can follow along on the screen. The book of Joel starts in verse one. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Like I mentioned, we don't know a whole lot about Joel, but we do know that Joel is a prophet, and he's been given to us by God, for God, and Joel is a mouthpiece for God, and he's not talking about himself, or he's not talking about how awesome he is, he's talking about God. Verse three says that Joel's book is actually to be passed from generation to generation. Meaning this is just not one time for these people in this point, in this place. He says, I want you to remind the people from your children to your children's children, from generation to generation, that the day of the Lord is coming. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, The destroying locust has eaten. So there's this destruction. Skip down to verse 9. This is how bad it is. The grain offering and the drunk offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, so much so that even the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, and the oil languishes. How many of you know it's a bad day when the wine dries up? So he's saying this is a catastrophe. The locusts came and what they left, another horde came. And then what they left, another horde came. And what that left, the last horde came. And everything was destroyed. This is the picture of the locust plague that utterly devastates everything. Have you ever got to a point in your life where you feel like everything is just devastating? 
I mean, you look around maybe emotionally or physically or even spiritually, you just feel like everything's dried up. Devastation upon devastation. Have you ever felt like, like anything that you try to do, uh, you know, with loved ones or friends or, or anything that you try to get ahead on, it seems to just simply be devoured by whatever it is. The locusts come, just simply leave you in ruin. Well, this is the story that's happening to these people. Look in verse 13. Joel calls them and says, people, put on sackcloth and lament. O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar, go in. Pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. Everyone say, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. The day of the Lord, it's near, it's at hand, it is upon us. And so Joel, he calls all the people, get everyone you can. Bring them into a solemn let us Let us go before the Lord. Let us lay our lives down because, because if not, we are going to be destroyed. He goes on with another warning starting in chapter two. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm of the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land trouble for the day of the Lord. Everyone say the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It will be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds with thick darkness like blackness there is a spread upon the mountains and great and powerful people. Their like shall never been before nor will ever be again after them through the years of all generation. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. That is a terrible day. That is a day of judgment. It is the day of the Lord, and it has come upon the people. It is a day of darkness. It is a day of gloom. It describes it as clouds of darkness, and Joel goes on to describe how this plague of locusts is actually like an army of the Lord doing what the Lord desires. Look at what it says in verse four. Their appearance, the locust, the horde, the destruction, this movement upon Israel, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of a fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle before them, peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his own way, they do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another, each marches in his 
path, they burst through the weapons, and they are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through windows like a thief, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw, they're shining, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great, he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Now get this picture. God sends locusts upon the land to devour it. And it makes the illustration that this locust destruction is like the army of the Lord. And so God sends his army to destroy the people of Israel. And the threat, as you look around, is that the end is near. But, is God's only purpose destruction? Is that ultimately what God is after, to just leave us in ruins? No. Look in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Everyone say, all your heart. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. What that means is I don't want you to just simply put on a show that you're, that you're broken or put on a show that you're honorable or put on a show that you love God or put on a show outwardly by rending your garments to show that, God, you are remorseful. But rather, God says, don't worry about your garments. Worry about your heart. He says, I see your heart. Rend your heart before the Lord. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and he is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows? Whether he's going to get us out of this. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. I don't know how God's going to get this out of us. And I don't know if he's going to relent from all of this plague. I don't know how he's going to relent. But we should rend our hearts before the Lord because he's slow to anger. He is gracious. He is merciful. And he is abounding in steadfast love. This is what it means. If the people will repent, God will relent. If they will rend their hearts, he will cease from rending their land. Joel calls for repentance. Joel calls for fasting. Joel calls for us to lay ourselves down, to humble ourselves, to appeal before God's mercy. And so God will respond with withholding. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending you grain, 
and wine and oil and you will be satisfied. He's saying, listen, if you, would, if you would rend your hearts before me, if you repent before me, I'm gonna restore your grain. I'm gonna restore your wine. I'm gonna restore your joy. I'm gonna restore your oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Skip down to verse 25. And I will restore you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. He's the one that restores the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and you shall once again be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God, and there is no one else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Okay, listen to me, friends. The ultimate aim of God sending the locusts and the destruction upon the land is apparently to secure the people's undivided allegiance to him. He says, you shall know that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else. Evidently, the cause of the ruin is because of the people's half-hearted allegiance to God. Meaning, their affections have gone after another God. Their hearts have been torn. And so Jesus would say, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are actually far from me. God is saying, listen, you have this half-hearted, half-hopeful, you actually play the game really well, where you say you're a Christian, you say you love the Lord, you say you serve God, but actually you serve two masters. You actually share your allegiance with me, with all these other lovers. And so this half-hearted allegiance to God God says, I will bring you to a point where you will love me alone because there is no one else. In Revelation, letter to a church, he says, he says I would rather you be hot or cold because this lukewarm game you play I will spit that right out of my mouth. May God do whatever is necessary to have all of our hearts. If you're taking notes, write this down. A few things that are more dishonoring to God and dangerous for us than to love God half-heartedly. To simply play the game some of the most miserable Christians that I know, they just simply ride the fence. They, by day, sin. On Sunday, 
It's praise. And they ride this wave back and forth, and the most dangerous thing that we can do and the most dishonoring thing that we could do before God is play this wishy-washy game when God wants all of your affections. And so this is the first half of the book of Joel that says, rend your hearts and repent for the day of the Lord is near. But then the people repent and God relents And the final judgment that God promised did not fall upon them. Rather, he began to restore them back to a better place than they were. So evidently, when it says the day of the Lord is near, the near in the passage doesn't necessarily mean that it needed to happen soon, but rather it was on the brink of happening. How many of you feel that? It doesn't have to happen soon, but it is on the brink of happening, meaning all of the conditions are ripe. The troops are assembled, they're lined up, and they're ready. They're just across the border waiting to come in. The trumpet is on the lips of the commander ready to blow the horn, but at the very last minute, if the people would repent, if they would turn back to the Lord, the commander then would raise his hands and say, wait a minute, don't attack. I'm going to make peace with my enemies. And so, if that was the case, and that is the case, what about the promise that God made when he said the day of the Lord is near? Well, that brings us to the second half of the book. Joel lifts his eyes to the future. Inspired by the Spirit, he begins to predict the events that will precede the day of the Lord. Look in verse 28. This is where the second half starts. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit, God says. That's a capital S Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send and pour out my Holy Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone, say everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord said, it among the survivors shall be those of whom the Lord calls. If that passage sounds familiar to you, it's because it's what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Joel sees a future moment that will come such spiritual outpouring and blessing that goes beyond the prosperity of just simply grain 
and wine and oil. It goes beyond the prosperity that God restored from the plagues. But this blessing applies to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Because as the day of the Lord approaches, as it will come again, it comes again in darkness and destruction the same way. And so Joel sees two things coming as the day of the Lord approaches. He sees one, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all people, and the other is a trembling divine judgment that will be cast down for the people who reject him. God had fought against his own people in the past in order to lead them to repentance and salvation. And there is coming a day well, God will fight against the nations in the future for all those who reject repentance and salvation in his name. The final judgment in the world is described in chapter 3. Look at it. For behold, in those days at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, meaning they have tried to push my people and my word out. Look in verse 12. Therefore, let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit and judge all the surrounding nations. I will put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. I will go in tread for the winepress is full. And the vats overflow for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold for the people of Israel. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Let me tell you, that does not mean that God is going to gather to himself all the people of the nations and allow them to make a decision. What that means, rather, is God's going to gather all the people of the nations into the valley of decision to experience God's decision. God is the decider in the valley of decision. And the valley of decision and the valley of Jehoshaphat are the same thing. And the valley or the verdict, the decision is the same as judgment. So listen. I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. But God will decide. And has decided. 
how salvation actually works for the people of the world. Joel sees a, a future with two sides. On one side, repentance, salvation, and blessing for all of those who call on the name of the Lord. And on the other side, judgment and destruction for all the people who decide to go their own way. And when it says... That the Lord roars from Zion and the heavens shake and the Lord and the people take refuge in the Lord. That means at the end of the age, when the day of the Lord comes, God will meet us either like a roaring lion to devour or he will come as our refuge and our delight and our stronghold. This is what we must see. That the purpose of God in the first half of the book is that we would come to a place in our lives that we know the Lord our God and he alone is God. And the purpose of the second half of the book is so that you would know that the Lord is God and he alone is God. Meaning the purpose of God from the beginning of time to the very last day of the Lord is the same. God's purpose is to make known that he alone is God and he is to be worshipped and served above everything else. That's the purpose of God. Do we as a people understand the purpose of all things. God's glorious purpose is that all people in all the world would know that he alone is God. And if he alone is God, and that is the purpose of God in all things, how then are we his people to respond to his purpose? First, let us never lose sight of God's purpose for your life. That you would live and trust and honor God above all things. So that no matter what befalls your life, whether it be grasshoppers or judgment, a dissolving sun or moon, no matter what happens in your life, you look around and you feel like everything is in ruin. May you understand the purpose of God is so that you would know that God is God and God alone is God. His purpose to be God in the eyes of the world, that there is no one else above him. Which means, if we're God's people, then everything we do should have this aim. Helping people see God for who he is. But here we are. The beautiful, wonderful, American church. We have become so broken and we've become so weary by having other relationships, other emotions above God and his word 
We've become so comfortable having other relationships or our feelings or uh, these vast array of concepts at the center of our attention. And we look around in the ruins and we'd say, you know what we need to do? And we remove God completely from the scenario and say, well, if we just could fix this, if we could just have this, if we could just do this, if we would just live this way, then everything would be problem. And, but, the, but the problem is, is that everything seems to hurt no matter what we do. Let me ask you, are we not bored with the very unamazing results of standing in front of the mirror of self saying, what's wrong with me? Well, there's only one thing. It's we've placed everything above God. Well, if I could just look better, if I could just be better, the locusts, they will destroy everything. Are we not surrounded by an untold number of, of personal problems looking to everything and anything to satisfy, whether that be psychology or sociology or, or, or government or something, anything that would remedy our condition. The problem is your soul is dislocated from God and who God wants to be in your life. If we would just simply learn to gaze upon God and know the purpose of God that he is God alone, and look upon the heavens, upon whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess on earth and under the earth and in heaven. Everything that befalls our life, would we be able to gaze upon God? Only then might we see God's purpose. Only then will we come to the understanding that God will achieve his purpose, that through whether destruction or repentance, that he is God alone. Second, if we find that our hearts wander from this God, we need to understand that the most loving thing to do for the wanderer is do whatever it takes to bring him back. That if we find ourselves wandering, may God fight against us and bring us to repentance. I've seen this in my own life. When I feel like prayer is not necessary, if I feel like I become prideful or overconfident, that God would put a barrier in my way. And what I try to do on my own strength, he brings crumbling down, whether that's through a, an army of locusts or just simply brokenness in my own life. It is God's grace to box us in and clog our way and to fight against our pride because he is a jealous God and he wants our whole hearts. Chapter 2, verse 12, it says, return to me with all your heart. That's what God's fighting for. He's fighting for our hearts. 
He says, return to me with all your heart. Listen, not just a piece of your heart, not just part of your heart on Sunday, not just a little bit of your heart at mealtime, and not just, you know, a little bit of your heart at bedtime when you, you know, say your nightly prayers. He says, I want all of your heart. And if you are his, he will fight with you because he's fighting for you. And you are your greatest enemy. Amen? And so he will bring you low because he loves you. He will, he will bring you to a place where all you can do is look up until you give him all of your heart all of the time. That's what God fights for. Third one is this. Don't be bitter if God frustrates your day. Joel pleads, rend your hearts, not your garments. Awake, O people, lament, be ashamed and wail, declare a fast, cry to the Lord for mercy. Meaning turn from every sin that you cherish, every sin that you feel guilty for every day, and return to the Lord. Why? Because he's gracious. And he's merciful. And he abounds in steadfast love. And he's wanting to restore your land. Every divine stroke of his discipline is coming from a loving a father who will come against our pride, our self-reliance, and our love for the world. And he does so to turn our hearts back to him. And finally, the last thing is this. We should respond through prayer and worship. May we seek God earnestly. He promised that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 was true on the day of Pentecost. Peter said as he stands upon the people, that which is spoken by the prophet Joel, that's what you're witnessing here now and today. But listen to me, friends, because that outpouring of the Spirit upon the people who call upon the name of the Lord is just simply the beginning of the blessing that God wants to bring upon his people. It's only a taste of the power of the age to come. And it's only a down payment of the Spirit, as the New Testament writers write. This promised prophecy is far from complete because God wants to pour out his spirit upon his people again and again and again. And there's more people that do not know the Lord who have not called upon the name of the Lord that God wants to fill with his spirit. And the scriptures promise that one day that men and women from near and far from across the entire globe and across every nation of every nation will come and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and the prophecy of the Spirit will be under fulfillment in those days. And so we must pray earnestly, call upon God, fill us with, our, with his Spirit, that this great awakening would not just simply happen across the nation somewhere, somehow, but it would start with us in this place. The world is ripe. The day of the Lord is near. And if we would just simply pray and we would obey and we would ask God 
to pour out his spirit among many sons and many daughters, near and far, all uniting us in the name of Jesus Christ. How is his mercy possible? How could God remain just and pour out his spirit? It all points to Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross. That cross was the wrath of God that we deserved that was poured out upon Jesus. And when Jesus died, the sun was darkened. And all of the locusts of God's wrath toward all of our sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ and devoured the life of the Son of God. Jesus took our sin upon himself, and those who call upon Jesus as Lord and Savior will receive power and blessing and resurrection in those last days. Jesus took the judgment that we deserve. Jesus took the day of the Lord that's coming upon himself so that on that day of the Lord, we would find refuge in Christ alone. Romans 10, 13, Paul writes, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. His name is Jesus and he's come to save his people from their sin and from the day of the Lord, the wrath that comes. So when that day comes, all nations that are gathered into judgment into Verdict Valley, Jesus Christ will be your refuge. And we will on that day confess and praise of an unspeakable joy because Jesus alone is God and there is no one else that could save us. Let's pray. Lord God, we are your people. And God, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for coming to save us. And even now, as we sit in this church service, we understand that it is the last hour, that the trumpet could sound like a thief in the night. But God, you hold out your great grace. And Jesus, you hold out your mercy before us. And you offer us again to come in the name of Jesus and receive your steadfast love for us. Lord, let there not be a man, a woman, or any person who might hear this message reject the offer in these last days, for the day of the Lord is near. Lord, today, would you rend our hearts? Would you break our spirit? Would you bring us to our own individual valley of decision where you speak tenderly to us and that we would know that you are God and you are God alone 
Lord, may we confess our sin before you. May we confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. That you paid for sin. That you rose to life. And you offer us the forgiveness that is found only by your blood. Jesus, right now, bring us to that place. Restore our land and let us be repentant and relent upon us. If you're here today, no one's looking around, every eye is closed. If you're here today and you'd say, you know what, I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but today, Today, I want to give my life to Jesus. If you're here today, would you just lift your hand up and just put it right back down? Is there anyone here that would say, you know what, I want to give my life to Jesus today. I need a Savior. If you're here today and you would simply say, there's things that you trust along with God to bring salvation. <laughs> and today you want to rend your heart before God and say, you know what, God, I've put my trust in so many things above you. If you're here today and you just simply be honest and you, you want to rend your heart before God, would you just, just lift your hand and say, you know what, I've done that, I want to repent. I've done that, I want to turn. I've done that, I need to come back to the Lord. Yes, yes, yes. as we raise our hands in acknowledgement we raise our hearts to you and ask you by your blood oh Jesus upon the cross that you would cleanse us that you would clothe us with righteousness so that as we see the day of the Lord drawing near we would take great refuge in what you've done and who you are in Jesus name amen if you're here this morning and you simply need some special prayer, we've got some prayer partners in the back that would love to pray with you and encourage you. This is our time to reflect. This is our time to uh, help uh, think about the word that was given to us, to reflect upon how good and gracious Jesus is and to proclaim his great name with song and reflection. And so I'm gonna leave the band here to lead us in a time of worship and tell you I love you guys so much thanks how great the chasm that lay between us how high the mountain I could not climb in desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written in Jesus Christ, my living hope.
could imagine? Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross is spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, now I'm yours forever. In Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah. Your 